Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. I love being here with you. Hope you feel the same. We are back in Thessalonians today, and our focus again is on the day of the Lord. Uh, The day of the Lord is when Jesus comes back. And on that day, it is either God's wrath or God's glory for every person who's ever lived. It's eternal punishment or eternal life. Uh, The day of the Lord should drive every person to repentance and to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For believers, the day of the Lord should fill us with hope. Uh, It's the day our Lord comes for us, and we are gathered to Him and will be with Him forever. It's the day of our resurrection. It's that day that all our suffering will be turned into unspeakable glory. And we, as believers, are living for that day. We are living with our hearts and our minds, our attentions, our affections focused on that day. It's a day that we love and long for. But not everyone feels that way about it. The Bible describes a philosophy of life common to unbelievers that hasn't changed in more than 2,000 years. And that philosophy is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's no judgment day, if there's no accountability to God, if there is no coming wrath, then let's just eat and drink. Let's just soak up whatever enjoyment we can here and now. The contemporary version of that philosophy is life is short, so play hard. Or life is short, so get your bucket list done before you die. Uh, People who live absorbed with that philosophy are not preparing for the day of the Lord. They either deny that there is a day of judgment or it means very little to them. Uh, There is a danger even of this attitude of get all your pleasure you can right now. There's a danger of that attitude creeping or that philosophy of life creeping into the hearts of believers. So we need to be aware of that. But that is not how Jesus and the apostles talked about life ever. Jesus constantly told stories about people who sought the pleasure and the treasures of this world who were not rich toward God and not prepared for the day of judgment. He said, what benefit is it to you if you would gain everything in the world, every pleasure, every treasure in the world, but lose your own soul. Everything needs to be geared toward being ready for the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, God commands people everywhere. He said this in Acts 17 to the uh, Athenians, people in Athens. He said, God commands people everywhere to repent because he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he raised from the dead. Of course, that is Jesus. Psalm 96, 13, the Lord is coming. I love that. The Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Again, Jesus warned over and over to live your life now in light of the day of judgment. And the most important issue in everybody's life is to be prepared to meet God on that day. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 is about that day. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, or three weeks ago when we last were in Thessalon- Second Thessalonians. 
And Paul said here in this passage, in this scripture that we just read this morning, Paul said here that there are those who are perishing and those who are saved. Perishing means a life that is under or a life that ends under God's wrath. It means to be excluded from the glory and presence of God. That's Paul's definition, not mine. It means to be uh, excluded or kept away from the, the pleasure and the presence of being with God. Salvation means to be saved from the wrath to come. There's a lot of other thing that it mean, that, things that it means too, but ultimately salvation means to be saved from the wrath to come and to enjoy safety and joy and glory in God's kingdom forever. In this passage, uh, Paul begins with those who are perishing and why they are perishing. And I'm going to go back to chapter uh, 1, verse 8. Uh, just be, which just precedes this for the first, the first one as, as far as why they are perishing. First, they do not obey the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They rebel against this message they resist and refuse to obey the truth about Jesus. Second, they do not love the truth. They do not love God's truth. And this is in our passage this morning, chapter 2, verse 10. They are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Uh, the, the logic here, of course, is if they love the truth, they would be saved. But they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They close their heart and their affections toward the truth. This is the condition of the hearts and minds of those who are perishing. Third, they are perishing because they did not believe the truth. It's interesting that Paul says they did not love the truth, and here he says they're perishing because they did not believe the truth. That's chapter 2, verse 12. They not only close their affections, their love, their, their heart toward the truth, but they close their minds to the truth. They simply will not believe it. And fourth, instead of believing the truth, they took pleasure in uh, wickedness. I, I think the ESV says uh, unrighteousness. Uh, the translation I'm more familiar with says they took pleasure in wickedness. That's verse 12. In other words, their real reason, their real motive for refusing to believe the truth about Jesus is that they just want to keep on enjoying or taking pleasure in their sins and their wickedness. And we so often, if, if you're uh, aware of what's going on in Christian culture at all, or I, I, should, I should say church culture because I'm not really sure all these people are, are Christians, but if you're aware of what's going on in church cul culture, you so often hear about people who are brought up in the church and all of a sudden they come out and say they no longer believe the Christian message. And they repudiate it publicly. And then right after that, you usually hear that they just committed adultery. Or started sleeping with their girlfriend or something like that. Choosing the pleasure of sin will cause people to reject the truth. Because they just don't go together. 
you can't love God's truth and love to stay in your sins or continue in your sins. They just, you can't, it's like you can't serve two masters. You can't do those two things. Well, these are the thoughts and the choices of those who perish. But then Paul adds something that might surprise us here. He says that they will be supernaturally assisted to this terrible end. And first, he's going to talk about how they'll be supernaturally assisted by the working of Satan through the man of lawlessness. But then he's also going to tell us how, how God is going to play a part in that. So we're going to address that. First, Paul said they will be deceived by uh, satanic, supernatural powers working through the man of lawlessness. All right, if you've you've been with us, as I've been teaching through uh, Thessalonians, you know something about this man. Paul talked about him earlier in chapter 2, and again, we covered this about three weeks ago. And Paul said two events must come first before the day of the Lord. He said the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And then you, then, then, then you remember he added, and the Lord Jesus Christ will kill this man by the breath of his mouth when he appears. So that's who we're talking about here in this passage, this man who is going to be used to deceive the world. So here in chapter 2, Paul describes how this man of lawlessness will use the powers of Satan to perform false signs and wonders, and he will deceive those who are perishing. That's verse 9, which I'll read again. The coming of the lawlessness, lawless one, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now, we don't know specifically what those uh, miraculous or amazing signs and wonders and powers will, will be. He may heal people. Uh, he may demonstrate uh, supernatural knowledge about events before they happen. He will more than likely counterfeit the miracles of Jesus or the gifts of the Spirit. But they will be false. They will be counterfeit. They will be energized not by the Spirit of God but they will be energized, Paul says, by Satan. And those who, again, those who do not love the truth, those who have, who have not attached their hearts to the truth, they will be deceived by this man of lawlessness, Paul said. Uh, Revelation 13.3 des- describes the same kind of phenomenon. I, I think it probably you know, refers to the same Situation, the same man, uh, whether it does or not, it certainly describes the same kind of thing happening. Uh, Revelation 13, 3, it says, The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Uh, just as a, a description of, of, of how the whole world is deceived uh, by the man of lawlessness. Uh, the, world, the word marveled that is used in Revelation 13.3 is the same word that is used dozens of times in the gospel to describe people's reaction to the miracles of Jesus. And so uh, Paul simply says that that same kind of thing is he's describing that same kind of thing here in 2 Thessalonians 2 that those who are perishing they will be amazed by the signs and wonders and powers that this man of lawlessness 
does, and they will go after him. They will follow him. They will completely uh, swallow what he, who he is and what he says. And in the previous passage, again, that we taught three weeks ago, it says they, w- they will actually worship him as God. Verse 10, they fall into this deception because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. When people reject the word of God, they open themselves up to all kinds of lies. And we see that on a massive scale in our culture today. And it happens on a personal level in all people's lives who spurn the truth or who do not love and delight in the truth. When, when they do not love God's truth, they just automatically open their minds and their hearts to be wildly deceived and Josh talked about some of those things last Sunday so I'm not going to repeat them all here but I, most of you know know the kind of things the kind of deception the just blatant lies that are believed in our culture today the most foolish untrue things that are swallowed hook line and sinker because people have rejected God's truth so there's a lesson for us here, and I would, in, I would encourage you, listen, listen to this lesson. It is incredibly dangerous to not love the truth. You put yourself in a very vulnerable situation by not knowing and loving God's truth. And the sad thing is that many people who identify as Christians, and no, notice how I phrase that, people who identify as Christians. I'm not saying they all are, but many who identify as Christians do not love the truth. They have no affection, no heart uh, for God's truth. Uh, in fact, they, they, they are bent or inclined toward teachings that are not found in the Scripture. Uh, they're not satisfied with the gospel. Uh, they're not satisfied with the access the blood of Christ has given us to the Father. They're not satisfied with the Holy Spirit and the genuine gifts of the Spirit. They're not satisfied with the hope of resurrection and salvation and eternal life. They are bent or inclined to look for something new and different. Again, it's like the, the gospel of Jesus Christ just isn't good enough for them and they love, they go after, they love other truths. And this was going on in Paul's day, in the days of the New Testament. It was called Gnosticism. But it's going on in our day too. Just looking for some secret, mystical, greater uh, revelation than what we have right in our Bibles. A recent Gallup poll reported that 82% of Americans identify themselves as spiritual or religious. And it is just so common in our day to say, I'm not a Christian or I don't go to church, but I am a spiritual person. And people like that will be so easily deceived by the false spirituality and the counterfeit miracles, the counterfeit signs and wonders of this man of lawlessness. These are prophetic words. They're the words uh, of the Apostle Paul that our God breathed, he says this is going to happen, and it will happen. And again, there's a warning here for Christians. Uh, Do not be overly impressed by signs and wonders. Uh, God does miracles and signs and wonders. I believe that. But we are not to be overly 
impressed or easily deceived by anybody that evidences some kind of supernatural gift, okay? The days are coming, Paul says, Paul says right here, Paul says the days are coming when supernatural signs will be performed by a man who is energized by Satan. And he said in our last passage, let no one deceive you in any way. And I just think that's such a good word for Christians to keep in mind. But there is something else uh, that is driving this end-time deception. And that's in verse 11. It says, Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So they're, you know, they've taken this position that they don't love the truth, they don't believe the truth, they don't obey the gospel, they have chosen to love their pleasures, uh, the pleasures of wickedness rather than God's truth. And they're deceived by the, the, law, the man of lawlessness. And then here God comes along and also sends a delusion so that they believe what is false. He gives them up to delusion. I think uh, probably much, way, much the way men and women are given over to judgment or to the wrath of God as described in Romans 1, which I'm going to read a couple of phrases from that passage. There's three times in Romans chapter 1 that Paul says God gave people up. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Therefore, God gave them up to impurity. Uh, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, which is pretty much the same thing that Paul is saying here in this passage, right? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so they're already, in some sense, not experiencing the final judgment, but they are already experiencing, they are already under a kind of present, uh, present temporal wrath or judgment of God. And it seems that the same kind of thing is happening here uh, in Second Thessalonians. Because they reject God's truth, God gave them over to a strong delusion so they believe what is false. Verse 12 God does this in order that judgment may, be, may come upon all who have not believed the truth and delighted in wickedness. Again, there comes a point of no return. Uh, we, we preach a gospel of grace and love and that today is the day of salvation and we appeal for all men uh, and women, young people, it, no matter what past failures or sins are, we appeal to them to come and receive the grace of, a, of God and to be loved by God and to enjoy the salvation that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. But, again, there is a point, a day of no return. And so, they, again, they choose to enjoy their wickedness instead of believing the truth, so God will actually keep them on a path of judgment. And we see the same kind of thing in Revelation, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, the last chapter. Uh, basically talks about, there's, there's a point where God says, let those who are wicked still keep being wicked. 
and let those who are good and righteous still keep being good and righteous. And that's there, in other words, those, those choices get strengthened and enforced and there comes a day where people are actually kept on that path of judgment. It's a sobering truth, but it is true. Well, up to this point, in this passage, Paul has been talking about those who are perishing, and that's what we've been talking about. And there is, there's nothing hopeful or lighthearted about this. Uh, it's a sobering and sad truth. It's something uh, to fear and to, to flee from at any cost. And yet, obviously, Paul intends for Christians at Thessalonica and for us to know how it is going to turn out for those who refuse to love the truth. Uh, Jesus and the apostles never sugarcoated this reality or hid it from the saints, which unfortunately is the practice in many, maybe even most churches today. Jesus and the apostles never hid this truth. First, or why? First, just because it's the truth. And our God is a God who speaks truth. He reveals, reveals, reveals truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our God does not deal with deception with us. He lays it right out for us. The day of the Lord is coming. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it he is coming and he will not delay it's a fact and so we need to know that fact and God tells us that fact some will go to eternal punishment and some will go to eternal life and as a church family believers saints we are to know that truth second why under under why does Paul uh, lay this out for the Thessalonians and and for us second we need to know what we are saved from. Where the day of the Lord is not taught, or we might say where the day of judgment is not taught, people don't really know what they are saved from. They use the word salvation, but, and they might have some, some ideas about uh, what being saved means, but usually it means something like just to feel better or to kind of have a little better life right here and now, they don't really understand the full magnitude of what it means to be saved when, when this truth is not taught. And there are churches uh, all, all, all over the world, and probably especially here in the United States, but there are churches here in Ankeny where people would never hear a word about the Lord Jesus Christ appearing from heaven in blazing fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. You just will not hear that. Uh, I recently had a conversation with a dear brother who is now going to what I consider an apostate church. And he was kind of excusing it, saying, but you know, the teaching there is so encouraging and so positive there, and we're getting so much out of it. And I said, you know, I'm sure it is. I'm sure the messages are positive and encouraging. But what I'm concerned about at that church is what they won't tell you. I'm concerned about what they're not preaching there. Ignorance about the day of the Lord diminishes our appreciation for our salvation. I mean, if we don't really know what we're saved from, we're not really going to appreciate what we have. It diminishes our appreciation for Jesus. 
Paul told the Thessalonians, back, this is going back to the book one, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, he commended them, he said, because you guys are waiting eagerly for God's son to come from heaven and we've talked about that phrase a lot, but you know what, what goes on after that? He says, you are waiting for God's Son from heaven. That is Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. That's an important point. You see, it was a big deal to the Thessalonians to be saved. When Paul talked about them being saved or chosen for salvation, that meant a lot to them. They understood that. And Paul wants us to understand what a big deal it is to be saved. What a huge blessing it is to be saved. All right, then in verse 13, Paul turns from the perishing to those who are saved. And we are on a completely different trajectory. Praise God, right? Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He gives thanks to them because they are chosen by God to be saved. They are not perishing. They are not under condemnation. They are to be saved. And when you know what's happening to those who are perishing, it's just such a good thing to be saved. Amen? So, we do enjoy many present blessings of salvation. This is not to minimize that. The Scripture is full of the blessings that we have and enjoy right now, this morning, here today, because we are saved. Uh, We have the love of God. We have that right now. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We stand in grace. Uh, We enjoy the love and fellowship of the saints and answered prayers. We have God's favor upon us now. Uh, And we experience just daily uh, goodness and mercies and blessings every, every day, all the time. But the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate work of Jesus is to save you from judgment for your sins, to save you and I from the wrath to come, and to bring you safely into the kingdom of God, to raise you from the dead, to make you live forever in peace and happiness in the new earth and heavens. Salvation is from the wrath of God into this new life that is so good and so safe. Verse 13, again, God chose you as the first fruits, first fruits, or among the first to be saved. God chose you for this salvation. God was at work before you knew him, drawing you, calling you, choosing you for salvation. And this happened through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, or through the sanctification of the Spirit, and through uh, belief or through faith in the truth. I can't go into all the Uh, aspects of this verse it could be a verse taught on all by itself but God chooses you but he he does it through the uh, working of the Holy Spirit and through your faith in the truth 
But the point is, the big point here, I, I believe in this scripture, as, it's, as, it's, as Paul makes or the Holy Spirit makes it through Paul, all the way through here, is what is the big benefit of this salvation? And this is what he tells us in verse 14. And if you're sleeping or dozing off or have lost interest, uh, wake up, okay? Verse 14, listen. God called you to this salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there is why God saved you. The end goal of your salvation is glory. It's the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not perishing, not condemnation, not destruction, but glory. Christ in you now is the hope of glory. Christ in you now is the hope of all these glorious things to come for you. And you will be glorified with him. And I love that word that that Paul uses here. You will obtain the glory of Jesus. You're going to get it. You are going to have, to possess the glory of Jesus. And all through the New Testament, in Paul's writings especially, Paul's thinking about the future was dominated by this glory. This was really important to Paul. And I think it plays way too small a part in our thinking about life and the future. It it, it just, it it captivated Paul's thinking, this glory. And he said this glory is so great that it compensates for all the worst pain and suffering in this life. I do not consider the sufferings of this present time even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, no matter what you lose in this 